Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, it's part one of my conversation with Tyler Whitman and Bobby Jameson about their new book, Biblical Reasoning. And we're talking particularly about the types of categories we use theologically when we are reading the biblical text. And so today I talked to Tyler about the theological categories. And in part two, which will come up here in about a week or so, we'll talk about some of the biblical studies angle of this as these two bring these together, I think, in a really, really helpful way. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tyler Whitman. We are brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about this English Bible translation. And now, my conversation with Tyler Whitman. But first, no big deal. Tyler Whitman is here. Tyler, you and I have texted just about every day for what, three years, four years? I don't even know how long it's been now. And I've never had you on the podcast. But I did ask you one time, and when I was in Louisville and you got sick or something and you couldn't do it. So I have at least tried once, but it is long overdue to have you on Church Grammar. I'm glad to be here, man. The Church Grammar. (laughs) The. I'm going to trademark that like Ohio State did. The. (laughs) That's right. Church Grammar. All right, Tyler, I want to talk today about your new book with Bobby Jameson, Biblical Reasoning, Christological and Trinitarian Rules for Exegesis. So this is going to be part one of two. We're going to talk on this uh, episode, and then we'll have a following one with Bobby. And really why I wanted to break it up in part is because what you guys are doing is you're sort of bringing together two disciplines that should not have been put asunder, right? A systematic theology and exegesis. And so you're sort of the token systematic guy in the book. And then Bobby's kind of the token uh, biblical studies guy in the book, even though both of you are really good at the other thing, which is what makes this book so good. So we're going to talk particularly about some of the big systematic categories, and then we'll follow up in the next episode talking to Bobby about sort of uh, thinking theologically in the biblical studies guild, which is kind of its own uh, conversation in some ways. Oh, yeah. Okay, so let's start here. Uh, you have a line in the, the very beginning, first page of the introduction that I really thought was helpful, and I thought I'd just let you kind of uh, kick off here, because it really, it is literally what you call the goal of the book, right? So let's start with the goal of the book. You say, um, our goal in this book is to assemble a toolkit for biblical reasoning. The toolkit's goal is to enable better exegesis. And that uh, goal of that exegesis is ultimately to see God. And so then what you say there is, when we say bi- uh, better, better exegesis, You're not just saying, oh, this is uh, a satisfying way to read the text, but you're also thinking about the bigger reality of God who has presented himself in this text and who has revealed this Mm -hmm. text, right? That it's not just about grammatical uh, moves. It's also about sort of worship and thinking about who is this God who has given us this word. So maybe talk there just about the big idea of what you're trying to accomplish in the book and why you think it's important. Yeah. Well, I mean, so Bobby wrote this introduction, and he just puts it so clearly here, um, and that sums it up. I mean, you know, what, what, what we, you know, he, he and I kind of have had conversations for a number of years now about what theology and exegesis kind of look like. They're, you know, you can't really take them apart, right? I mean, theology gets pretty boring when it's not really concerned with opening up the text of scripture and and doing exegesis and. And exegesis can also get pretty boring when it's not actually exegesis, when it's not uh, answering to its kind of, you know, vocation, which is to think about God, right, Um, Mm -hmm. and to um, speak about Christ. So, um, you know, as as we kind of got talking about this, we had a couple of examples ready to hand of of, uh, 
you know, of, of, of theology or of biblical um, commentaries or, or, or monographs or whatever, where, you know, one of the, of those other elements was, was, was kind of missing, right? Uh, the theology or the, exe- the uh, you know, exegetical rigor, as it were. And so what we mean by better exegesis here is just, well, you know, stuff that's doing, that's attempting to do both things uh, well, right? With um, intellectual seriousness and, um, and rigor. And so as they do so, they're also going to be, I think, tethered to some, some really classical intuitions, not just, you know, from the fathers or not just from this or that tradition. Really, you just find this throughout the tradition is that regardless of who you're looking at, if you're looking at a reformer, you're looking at a church father, you're looking at a medieval theologian, or you're looking at uh, e- even the best uh, modern you know, theologians, you're finding uh, men and women who are reading the, uh, the text of scripture as a means or as a site, a moment of their communion with God. And they're trying to know the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? And so when when we decided to put this uh, book together, we kind of said at the outset, like, well, that's got to be what it's all about, right? Uh, exegesis and theology, these things are not ends unto themselves. Only God is an end unto himself. And so we really they have to be kind of taking us there. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the plan, as it were, in a nutshell, is that these things could be leading us to uh, to God. And you you title it biblical reasoning, which is obviously from um, kind of a seminal essay by John Webster, who was your Doctor Vater. Um, so just talk through that a little bit, like you know, what is biblical reasoning? How have you been shaped by that type of thinking uh, as you've sort of grown, you know, kind of grew up as an academic, as you were, as it were, as you were doing your PhD? Yeah. And how does that sort of influence what you guys are doing in the book? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, it's not meant to say that like this book somehow carries on John Webster's thinking or anything. That's we don't uh, make any such uh, claims or, or have any such ambitions. Um, one of the things that John Webster really worked on throughout his career was bibliology. He was really looking at, I think, the doctrine of Holy Scripture in terms of what are some things that usually are missing from that doctrine and, you know, the, the, the theological interpretation of scripture kind of dialogue that was really taking place over the last 30 years or so, you know, he, he, he was uh, involved uh, in those discussions kind of, in, in, I think, um, at the tangents of it, right, or the, the perimeters of those discussions. But um, what we really we would call this biblical reasoning, obviously, it's an ode, and it's a, it's a, it's borrowed directly from a essay of his with that same title, where he just says, "Look, there's exegesis and theology; they just go hand in hand. Um, they are two modes of um, of reason as it is engaged in thinking about God. Right? We follow the text, and then we try to produce a conceptual representation of that text, and um, in its whole, you know, kind of scope and sequence and unity. And, um, you know, those two modes of, 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 of reasoning kind of what they do is they, they feed one another and they feed off of one another. And so there's a, a circle, right. And a cycle that kind of is continuously going on here where you're reading from scripture, you're putting together your understanding, you're going back to the text to test that understanding as a hermeneutic for the whole of scripture and also test it against the particulars and, and refine it, and you're coming back up for air again, and you're kind of doing that in a continuous cycle. And uh, hopefully, you know, at the end of the process, you have a refined understanding of the text and of God, and um, and so forth. But it's that constant process of rereading that you're really um, attaining that 
that that understanding. So that's what we really got from from him was that look, biblical studies, theology, these things should be working together. You know, theology and exegesis should be going together. And I think that's a you know some intuitions that he really got from Karl Barth and uh, and then the fathers and others. And so um, that's essentially what we're doing is we're just trying to say we're trying to uh, take these kind of starting points that we learned, I think both of us from Webster, what kind of starting points are those? Namely that the text itself is a kind of sign. It's pointing us to something beyond itself, right? Mm -hmm. Namely God. Okay. Um, That the text, given what this text is, what what kind of history is this text located in? Well, it's located in a divine economy as it were, right? Um, Where God is providentially, he, he has created this world and he has an end for it in view and he is providentially active within it. Uh, he has intervened and, in, in, you know, to re- redeem fallen human creatures. And this is, you know, one of the means he uses to kind of draw us to himself. Well, given that that's what the text is and that's where it's located, as it were, well, then, like, who are we as readers, right? And what is our end? As we, I mean, th- those are theological questions, right? You have to ask what the, what the Bible is, but you also have to ask who the reader is and why they're reading and what for. And, you know, uh, absent those kind of considerations, you're not really doing uh, theological exegesis. And so, uh, when we call it biblical reasoning, we're just saying, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, to kind of think those kinds of thoughts. Yeah. And so I want to just, we'll hit on a couple of chapters here, a couple of big ideas. Um, one of the things that you guys do in this book that I was telling you is so awesome is you have these rules, like at the beginning of a chapter, it says, here's a principle, here's a rule, which I said I should have thought of, uh, in mind. Cause I felt like sometimes, you know, uh, mine's not out yet, but when it's out, uh, everybody will see this. Um, that it's, it's, I try to organize it really well, but it's, you know, a chapter gets long after a while, right? So um, it's good that you guys just like, I, I, mean, I wish I had thought about, like put, a, put an abstract statement at the beginning or an abstract at the top or something like that. So one of your chapters, chapter four, Worthy Are You, um, this is a chapter that you really care about. Uh, you're dealing with Revelation 4, which is something I really care about. So there's a lot of, yeah. of uh, you know, sort of uh, overlap here in, in terms of, of our interests. But you have the rule here. Now, the chapter is called Worthy Are You? Understanding Scripture as Honoring God, which is really mm-hmm. flowing right out of what you've already been saying here. So uh, this rule says biblical discourse about God should be understood in a way appropriate to its object. So the, the rule is read Scripture's depictions of God in a manner that fits the canonical portrait of God's holy name and his creation of all things out of nothing. And then what you do is, and I'll let you kind of riff on this, but what you do is you draw on Revelation 4 as this heavenly uh, liturgy. And this is a thing that, you know, I'm wrestling with in my work as well is um, when you're reading scripture, you don't get very far in scripture before God is being honored. God is being worshiped. You're being directed toward him, right? And so when you're doing exegesis and you're not directing the interpretation, the point toward this God who is to be honored and worshiped, it's like you said, it falls flat, right? But you get to Revelation four, and it's like you can't do anything else with this. Like, there's no other move to make other than this is a clearly a heavenly liturgy. There's clearly worship. There's clearly you know God on His throne and the and the Lamb. So talk through a little bit, and you know, sort of why you chose this as a paradigmatic text to to draw on this bigger idea of the canonical portrait or the biblical portrait of of who God is and why that's so important in exegesis. Um. Yeah. I mean. You and I have been talking about this for a while. I remember having uh, sharing a burrito with you and and kind of running the uh, the basics by you and saying, "Well, well this, we had we had separate burritos, this, but we shared a table with burritos. That, we didn't oh, share a burrito. Right. That's right. That's, that's good. We didn't do a yeah, uh, lady, lady I, in the I tramp. Would never share a burrito. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I would never share a burrito. Um, no, uh, we uh, yeah, and I was kind of running by you, being like, "Is this acceptable exegesis?" Um, 
because you're a biblical scholar, you know, and uh, I, I thought this is a good, uh, <laughs> yeah, those who, those who know me know that's a, that's a mean insult that you've given me there. But, um, <laughs> I'll let it pass. I'll let it pass. <laughs> um, that's a little bit of an inside joke there. Um, but anyway, yeah, the, uh, you know, why did I light on that text? I can't, I don't even know. Um, I think it's just because, um, you know, I could give a pious answer, right. That I prayed, uh, that the Lord would help me to see truth and that he, he, he showed it to me, um, without presuming that what I'm writing is like God inspired. Um, let me just say that I just ended up finding, I think this text is a, it's, it's an arresting text, right? It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And you see, I think, you know, um, I think the exegesis that we do in chapter four is convincing and compelling in this regard. It sets up, there's a liturgy here. These clearly reflect kind of some core components of the doctrine of God, his simplicity, his eternality, his uh, immutability, um, his holiness in particular. And that these are reflected in the fact that he creates all things out of nothing. And that's why he's worthy to be, to receive the, the, the praise and the honor, the glory that only the creator uh, receives. And so if we understand our own acts of exegesis as kind of reflecting or even participating right, in an anticipatory way, that heavenly liturgy, right, of praise, then um, then how do we respond to God's revelation of himself, his, his kind of divine glory, showing us his holiness in the pages of scripture? How do we respond in a way that gives all honor, glory, and power to to God, right? Well, we have to kind of see the things, as it were, that the um, that the creatures and the elders around the throne see, right? Um, the truths that he is he is God. We have to see his godness to the extent that we can. We have to understand creation out of nothing and these sorts of things. And I think in Revelation four, you just find all this just compressed. It's there, and there's an added bonus in that they use this language of worthy, right? Axios. They they say, "Worthy are you, right, to receive these things." For by your will, right, um, everything existed and it was created. It's kind of really weird uh, order of, of, of stating it, but we'll get into that. But the, you know, the, that carries with it. I can't. I think the added bonus of like, hey, this concept that you find in the church fathers of like something being God befitting, right? Um, even though that that language of um, of uh, prepace, right, is not necessarily what's used in that particular passage in Revelation 4. It's used elsewhere in, in Hebrews, for instance. Um, but it's part of a, a kind of collection of words that all gets at the idea of appropriateness or fittingness or, um, you know, kind of fit between things. And so there's even a kind of conceptual transparency to, you know, the fathers weren't just cooking this up out of the blue. Um, there's actual biblical basis for it. So I think Revelation 4 is just a window into how Scripture um, into this larger kind of pattern you find throughout scripture of worship and our response to God, our rational and effective um, response to God uh, being part of our worship. And, you know, for the fathers and for the medievals, and I mean, for, for, for the greatest thinkers in the Christian church, this has always been really, these two things have been really wed together, good exegesis or good theology and piety, right? Uh, or, or, or kind of rightly ordered worship. And uh, I think maybe early on in my theological education, I would see those things and just think like, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. we're all Christians here. Like, get on with it. You know, like, but the, um, the older I've gotten and, and the more I read these things, the more I start to see, no, this is actually very 
crucial, something extremely important that's going on here. And so that's what we try to set up in chapter four is to try to set up the liturgical, right? And doxological kind of component of all of this, right? I mean, it's implicit already in chapter one. Mm-hmm. It starts to come to the fore in chapter four as well in, 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 in fresh ways. So, yeah, I mean, that's, I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but it's, <laughs> it's enough to it's enough to say yeah <laughs> so, yeah no i think uh i think what what else is good there is is a lot of this comes down to presuppositions right it's sort of like what do you think the bible is what do you think's going on in the bible what do you think we're yeah. supposed to be doing when we're reading the bible because one of the assumptions that you're making and it's an assumption you and i share uh is that there is a canonical unity so when you read something in revelation yeah. 4 the assumption is that that comes to bear on the rest of the bible and vice versa Right. So uh, you can read something in the middle of numbers where you feel like I have no clue what's really going on here, you know, or you're reading Leviticus and there's another law that you feel like isn't applicable anymore. If you have Revelation 4 in view, then you remember like these two things go together. Whatever's happening here, it's pointing us to this God who is worthy of our worship. Right. And that that Revelation Mm -hmm. 4 isn't some outlier, uh, really interesting thing John's doing, but actually is core to what's what's happening in the Bible. Right. So Mm -hmm. God creates the heaven and the earth. Genesis 1, Revelation 4. He is praised as the creator. Well, you know, Revelation 22, here's God being worshiped. There's your, there's your bookends. So everything else in there must sort of fit, right? So I think that's what's really helpful for you guys is, is long before you get to making some of your theological claims about uh, you know, inseparable operations, categorical claims, stuff like that. You really have four chapters here where you're talking about seeking the Lord's face, worshiping the Lord uh, as the one who is worthy. Because again, that's that's your presupposition and the right presupposition I think scripture tells us to have about what we do when we approach the text. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's true. I mean, and even in chapter three, where we kind of lay out the rule, as it were, we do this very, very briefly of the, you know, the kind of uh, analogy of faith, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You read one part of scripture and let of all scripture and vice versa. You know, you, you have to have an operative account of scripture's unity well, if you don't think the Old and the New Testaments are one book, um, you know that's it, that's a that's a, a deal breaker right there yeah. um, at the very outset, right? And that's why it's one of the first things to be uh, debated or combated in you know in church history. Uh, you know, Irenaeus is kind of arguing for the Bible's unity, and at the same time, he's arguing for a way of reading it that mm-hmm. way right i mean what what is the key that shows us its unity where christ is um so <clears throat> the unity of god and the unity of scripture are kind of like um they kind of mirror one another yeah. in our, our in our understanding of them right we kind of, kind of mirror one another because if you don't think that the old testament is part of the same bible the new testament is well then new testament claims about jesus aren't going to you know jesus in the spirit in relation to the father that's not going to result in Trinitarianism unless you think that the background is the Old Testament. Right. Right. And, uh, and I think Calvin Rowe does a really uh, clear job of showing this in a celebrated article of his that we lean upon uh, heavily. Uh, I think Calvin Rowe for, for Bobby and I is kind of one of our um, hero figures, as it were, in the yeah. Testament Studies Guild. Um I love everything that guy writes. Even when I disagree with him, I'm forced to learn something, right? And and I'm also like wondering, like maybe I'm wrong. You know? It's probably it's probably me. It's not him. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably me. Yeah, um, you know. Uh, and, and so we we gladly lean on him and David Yego and, and some others. Um, yeah. But that, yeah, you're right. I mean, the unity of Scripture. I mean, that's that's really one of the major fault lines, right? Um, 
I think separating uh, a lot of a lot of biblical scholarship and, and even theology these days is kind of a uh, you know one side and another is what do you do with the unity yeah. of scripture? Yeah, something you guys get into even in the very beginning is we talked a little bit about not having this false dichotomy between theology and exegesis. Um, there's also the other thing that kind of comes up in what we're talking about here in terms of um, how do we think about uh, how we get from you know let's say Jerusalem to Nicaea, right, or whatever Rome to Nicaea, whatever. You, when you're kind of going from the New Testament to and you you make the point right at the very beginning, which I think is a really good point, uh, which is we don't have sort of like, oh, here's exegesis and this theology is way over here that we get to later, historically speaking, and even uh, in our exegesis. So maybe just talk a little bit about your thoughts on the relationship between the Trinity and the New Testament and the Nicene doctrine of Trinity, because Yego and Roe and others, you know, are, are dealing with this idea. Um, you know, you guys make the case and, and I would make the same that there is a material Really, uh, material similarity between the two things that John isn't like non-Trinitarian until Athanasius says he is, but actually there's already something going on there. So talk a little bit just about that relationship in exegesis. Yeah, you know, there's uh, you'll find some kind of reticence uh, sometimes um, in again some biblical scholarship. You know, you can't speak uniformly about the biblical studies guild. Uh, yeah, any more than you can speak uniformly about any other discipline, but. In, in, you know, in, in some kind of critical biblical scholarship, even where they're, where they're tracking theologically with some themes, there's still this kind of, well, Paul didn't quite have this hammered out or something, you know, and he wasn't really thinking. And what they, what's usually going on there is, well, he wasn't thinking in the same categories as, you know, the church fathers were 300 years later or something or 400 years later. Like, well, no one's thinking that, right? No, 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 no one's really saying that. Um, what they're saying is that they, they're each talking about something and the way that they're talking about that something god right is constrained by the reality in question god um but they're all talking about the same thing and the the truths that they're announcing right in their own ways are synonymous they're they're consistent with one another so david yego's you know kind of uh celebrated article you know um i forget the title of it nicene something right um <laughs> It's in it's in our book, uh, and we, but uh, it's in the it's bibliography. Also, it's also it's also everywhere else, right? Everyone, um, if anyone knows what they're doing, they're they're kind of uh, acknowledging Diego. The New Testament, um, the Nicene dogma. I, I was going to let you New work. Through, I was going to let right. you work through that for a minute, and then dunk on you. So there you go. And then, <laughs> it's good. Just let you let you feel the burn a little bit. Um, yeah. So um, you know, he makes this this simple distinction between judgments and concepts, and he says, you know, the the judgments that you find in Philippians two, for instance, between Christ being in the form of God and the form of a slave, he says those are, um, you know, form of God means equality with God. You know, he says that's the same judgment, okay, that's being made with homoousios of the same being. With, you know, but there are different concepts in play. More faith, they you, the form of God, right? Um, equality with God. That's not the exact same conceptuality as homoousios. Okay, um, and so you know, Darren Sirisky, uh, another one of John Webster's uh, students, has written a bunch of stuff on theological interpretation, a bunch of really good stuff. His book on reading scripture theologically is right here somewhere. That's really good. Uh, he wrote a recent uh, journal article that we that we cite as well in our chapter three, where he engages Diego on the, on some of these questions. And one of the you know he kind of is just nuancing, I think, some of Diego's. Um, points and, and and everything but one of the helpful things he, he he comments on is he says look you know 
even a concept like Morphetheu, for instance, he, I don't think he talks about Philippians 2, um, but even uh, a concept like that, it might be saying more, right? It might be saying some other things that the idea, the concept of homoousios is not saying, right? But within the particular biblical discourse in which it's situated in Philippians 2 and the Christ hymn, it is in service of making a judgment, right, that is also made in the Nicene Creed, okay, and the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. So while you can't reduce a concept to the judgment that it's facilitating in a particular biblical discourse, and you can't reduce that judgment, right, just to one one judgment that you're isolating, because it's also bound up to some extent with that concept and, you know, other associations that are going on with it. For instance, we talk about Christ being in the form of God. I mean, the background there is, you know, uh, the glory of God, I think, you know, the, the kind of freedom that God has to kind of make himself visible, right? The kind of Shekinah, um, you know, um, radiance, right, of, of God's glory in the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> you know, some of that's in play there, right? And uh, and even that's in play in how he's taking on, well, he's taking on this form, this visible shape, as it were, of a servant. Uh, that's how Paul defined his humanity. That's all embedded intricately within what Paul's saying in Philippians 2. So you don't want to just kind of take the judgment and say, thank you, Paul, and then just kind of run away. You right. know, you, there's more there in Paul, and there's layers. Um, but those qualifications in hand, and, and a couple of others, um, I'd encourage people to go read Sarasky's essay, but you know, those qualifications in hand, the concept judgment distinction does a lot of work, and, mm-hmm. and, and it's really valuable in helping people to see there's a continuity right between scripture and um you know these kind of ecumenical creeds as it were um <clears throat> that is helpful and it actually helps you see where these things come from in scripture why the church felt the need to say these things and yeah why she should continue to say them well one of the reason why there's so much overlap is because uh the fathers were exegetes right i mean uh the sure. nicene creed is essentially a long commentary on john one and hebrews one and a couple of other passages you know so i always have my students i'll, I'll have them read john one and put the nicene creed next to each other and just have them talk through the the similarities in language you know light these different languages that you see there and uh so that i mean in some sense you can even make the historical claim that this is always happening i mean you brought up irenaeus right thinking about how there's this there's an argument that you know the only reason why we have the doctrine of the trinity is because of these external pressures from heretics so they had to like figure out what they believed right then it's just really a political power play you know majority wins when in reality what what, what you see is happening of course there's i'm sure there's politics and things involved uh, church fathers weren't um perfect by any stretch of the imagination there's always politics involved yeah, yeah. That's, that's right yeah uh, but there is a sense in which like irenaeus already has a pretty good idea of what is biblical and what's not because of the rule of faith, because this thing that's already existing, that he's able to respond to the Gnostics, not going, oh, maybe they're right. I'll think about it. No, they're wrong. It's like, no, you guys are wrong because we already have this deposit that we already know. And then you get to Nicaea, you have the same thing, you know, this sort of contextual language that's saying the same things as what's happening before. So I think you guys do a really good job, uh, all that to say, of just drawing some of that some of that stuff out. So um, let's move on to, I think, the, the one kind of big doctrine I want to spend a little bit of time on. Yeah. Uh, inseparable operations and appropriations. Um, these are topics that I've thought a lot about, topics you thought a lot about. I know you worked really hard on this particular chapter. Um, you know, Vidu, uh, I talked to him a little while back on the podcast about his book, which is just, you know, a big, doing a lot of stuff. Um, it's one of those, it's one of those doctrines that I feel like 
um, I mean, everybody says that nobody pays enough attention to the doctrine that they like the most, right? That's sort of, that's sort of the move. But <laughs> it does seem like this was a really important move, uh, particularly theologically, exegetically in the early church. And it's kind of seeing a little bit of a resurgence now, I think, where people are realizing like how important and how much work it actually does. So um, I want to talk about that a little bit. So I'm not going to I'm not going to read uh, all of the rules here because they're a little bit longer. And I don't want people to um, try to listen to me read a work, read a book. Um, yeah. But you have chapter five where you talk about the oneness of God. And then you've got chapter six. We're talking about the inseparable operations and appropriation. And you can't separate these two things from each other. Right. So uh, Greg of Nyssa makes the point. Uh, you know, sort of Deuteronomy 6 is the controlling factor by which we understand all of Scripture. So God is always one, and He's not not one just because we have the Son and Spirit. So yep. maybe we'll start there, start with kind of a, a big picture there in terms of particularly reading Scripture. What do we do with the oneness of God? And then we could talk a little bit how to sort of flesh that out in the sort of distinctions that we see. Yeah, um, you know, chapter 6 and 7, you know, a bit of history there. It was initially, you know, the reason... So Bobby wrote chapters seven through 10 in the introduction. I wrote the conclusion chapters one through six. And people might say, well, why did you write more of the book? Well, it's because we had each planned on writing four chapters. My chapters just kept splitting and getting bigger, right? <laughs> the, the thing is that I'm not a disciplined writer like Bobby. That's you've, not, you've, not no, you've not been known to be verbose <laughs> either. So I mean, it's, just not, it's not really you. So yeah, strange. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Bobby, Bobby reined this thing in uh, constantly, right? Um, so uh, thankfully, I mean, otherwise it would have been a, a, a monstrosity. The uh, so six and se- or chapters, uh, what five and six were initially just one kind of sprawling mess, and um, and, and I realized yeah, it needs to kind of be split into two and, and kind of do some some work. So they do they do go together, and I even flagged this at the beginning of chapter five. I'm like, look, this is you know you really kind of take these two chapters together. Um, but chapter five is after this kind of rule of what we call um, we're borrowing from. Um, I think the the term initially comes from, doesn't it come from Gisheline Lafont? Uh, yeah. Lafont, um, yeah. yeah, the uh, the French uh, Aquinas scholar uh, of redoublement. Right? We need a we need a word um, that sounds a bit less uh, pretentious. In <laughs> I English just use, use this, the but... just use the Texas word redoublement. 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 Yeah. <laughs> That's how I read it the first time I saw it. Till I heard it was French, and then I realized I need to yeah. sound smarter. It's like yeah, res- double... resourcement. No, it's resourcement. You know, so yeah, because double speak doesn't really doesn't really <laughs> that's come not right. right. Yeah, um, no, that's not what we're after. Um, but basically, it just it's after the hey, there's a twofold way of talking and, that scripture observes, and so that's what chapter five is about. It's just kind of tracing that, right? Um, you know, one of the one of the things that I think we're trying to get people to look at, especially so I mean, it's not the whole book, and um, but but in chapter five, I think where it's it, it kind of starts in particular is to say. You know, if you really pay attention to, for instance, the Gospels, you have Paul and, and the rest of the New Testament, you know, when they're talking about the one God being Father, Son, and Spirit, um, there are, you know, there's there's kind of some, some there's obviously some rules there they are themselves observing. Because, for instance, you know, Paul will say that God is Lord, right? And they'll say that Christ is Lord. And he'll even say the Spirit is Lord. Now, in any other context, when we do that, we're going to say, Lord. Lord, Lord. Well, it's three lords, right? I mean, <laughs> duh. Um, but Paul doesn't go there. He's like, no, no, no. You know, there's still Deuteronomy six four. There's only one, right? Um, but he's not saying the three is a figment of my imagination or the three is unreal. He's saying no. There's there's Father, there's Son, the Spirit, and they are not one another, right? Mm-hmm. But they are all the one God. So we're after 
Well, the fact that he's speaking this way shows you that the reality in question, the reality he is witnessing to, constrains him to speak in this way. And it's because the oneness of God has to be understood against the background, yes, of the Old Testament, which is being upheld in the New Testament. But it shows you there's just this basic conceptual distinction we make between the divine essence and the divine persons, right? So why are Father, Son, and Spirit all equally Lord and yet not three lords? Because they are three persons and not three gods, right? So we, um, instead of counting gods, as we, I think, put it in there, we, we, we count persons, right? And so that classical distinction between uh, the divine essence or the divine nature, the divine being, and then the, the divine persons, the hypostases, right? That's uh, something you know you really find articulated very clearly by Basil in his response to Eunomius. We talk about this. It becomes this whole thing with Augustine, Book Five through Seven of De Trinitate, and it ends up becoming even more of a thing in the Middle Ages. You know, reading uh, a whole treatise that basically is just obsessed with this distinction by William of Saint Thierry. Um, um, you know, while the book was being finished, and uh, and then you know, Fourth Lateran Council becomes an even bigger issue. So it's a pretty serious distinction you draw in Trinitarian theology between divine essence and divine persons. And so, look, everything in God that applies just to the His unity, right, and His glory, His holiness, His immutability—these are all truths of the one God. Well, those are things that we say on account of God's essence. But there are things that distinguish the persons. Those are things that we know about and say on account of the distinction between the persons. So we're just trying to get people people to see, look, there's this there's a pattern of speech that the Bible uses in speaking about it, and that reflects this kind of distinction between divine essence and divine persons. And if you can get that distinction right and not collapse those two ways of speaking into one, because the, the gospels never do that. Paul never does that, right? Um well, if you can just learn to keep those those registers, you know, grammatically distinct, right? Even though God is one, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't know how divine essence, divine persons are one, right? We have to draw this distinction in our minds. Um, as long as we kind of keep those those two registers distinct conceptually, we'll I think be on good footing. And that sets up then discussion of inseparable operations. Yeah, because you are you are still. I mean, if you're trying to be faithful, doing faithful exegesis. You, you have to be constrained by the biblical idiom, right? And the biblical idiom is there is one and there are three, and this is not contradictory. <laughs> You're like, okay, well, if we actually yeah. do start there, then we've got a lot to do. But I think, yeah, what happens is you, you know, you end up with the, with the classic exaggerations. You've got like modalism where you're kind of emphasizing the oneness, or you've got some versions of tritheism or hierarchy that are really focused on how the three uh, relate. And the Bible just yep. doesn't allow us to elevate one over the other. So, I'll, I, you know, that's something I say to students a lot too. You know, like anytime you want to focus on one, the Bible's going to do three really quickly. And every time you want to focus on the three, the one language is going to come back, right? And really, what that does is sets up, or it's the it's the grammar that inseparable operations is 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 using, right, to try to figure out what to do with all that. So, uh, maybe give I can talk a little bit here just about the rules you set out because inseparable operations and appropriations are two things that go together. And I was telling you, uh, you know, before. I think if you, I think the reason why you guys do so well in this book is that if you get inseparable operations right, you get appropriations right. But I think sometimes people don't get one of those right, and then it can be confusing. But uh, I know you put a lot of work into this, so I want to let you just the, the fruit of your labor come out, Tyler, as as we uh, as we talk about uh, this chapter. So you have uh, separable operations. You know, an easy way to talk about it: the external works of the Trinity are indivisibly one, just as God is one. 
Uh, so that's the first sentence of that rule. And then appropriation, scripture sometimes attributes to only one divine person, a perfection, action, or name common to all three. So just like you said, for example, we don't have three lords, we have one Lord, even though the Father, Son, and Spirit are all called Lord in different places. So kind of launch into a little bit here, uh, moving from that oneness to the conversation about the distinction of persons and how they're actually acting in the biblical storyline. Yeah, this is a chapter that I struggled with because it's a doctrine that I struggle with, not in the sense that I, I struggle to think it's true or not, but I struggle just to, to do justice to it. It's, yeah. it's really complicated. As you know, I think you're writing on inseparable operations. Everyone's calling it inseparable operations now. That's a uh, phrase from Augustine, but it's really popularized by, I think, Lewis Ayers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in his book, Nicene's Legacy, and uh, in his book on Augustine and the Trinity. But um, that's just a, yeah, this catch-all term for the fact that everything the Father, Son, and Spirit do, they do as the one God, right? So there are three, just as there are three persons and only one God, there are three, as it were, actors, but only one action. And why is that? Well, that's because, you know, as, as we get into in the chapter, um, actions are, you know, resourced from uh, natures or essences, right? Where, where resident powers are located. Right. Uh, when I'm trying to teach this to students, these basic kind of things, I'm like, yeah, I mean, maybe you guys aren't used to doing metaphysics or something, but it doesn't take a whole lot of a lot of, uh, you know, um, uh, thought to get this straight. Right. You all recognize there are limits to what you can do based upon what you are, you know, like, uh, you, you know, to, to, to quote Tyler Durden. Right. Um, sticking feathers in your butt doesn't make you a chicken. You know, like you can't you can't you can't do chicken stuff because you don't have chicken powers. You know what I mean? I, like, I think about know. Fight Club a lot, but I've never quoted Fight Club on the podcast. Yeah. So I'm glad I'm glad we finally had that introduced. That's right. That's the one. That's the quote that always sticks out in my mind. Um, but um, yeah, you you know, I tell chicken, uh, I tell chicken, I tell students all the time, you can't do chicken stuff because you're not a chicken, and a chicken can't do human things because it's it's not a human, right? So obviously, the type of power you have, the type of actions you do, disclose the type of powers you have, discloses the type of being you have. Um, and if that makes me some kind of like you know godforsaken metaphysician and enemy of the church, then so be it. Here I stand, right? Um, but I think that's a, that you don't have to be like a you know you know, uh, subscribing to the 24 Thomistic Theses, kind of like, you know, foaming at the mouth, reading every uh, Edward <laughs> Fesser book that comes out, you know, kind yeah. of, uh, kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, theologian to, to agree with that. I think it's a fairly uh, intuitive point, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what you want to do with that, that's where the debates come in. But that's pretty obvious. Um, the fathers thought it was so. I think that the way that John's argument produces divinity goes as we kind of set out the exegesis in that chapter i think it kind of implicitly uh, vouchsafes for this same kind of movement where you see someone's action disclosing their being okay telling you something true about their being so the fact that the father the son and spirit's works are identified with one another in various parts of scripture um that shows you that they have an identity of being right um <clears throat> what do you do with the distinction of persons though well this is why i think that kind of using inseparable operations on a parallel track with appropriate or not appropriate uh, with a redoublement, right? Our twofold form of speaking is really helpful Mm -hmm. Um, because there's one sense in which, you know, election, for instance, or creation, it's just you creation is uh, creation's easiest one. Creation is, it's one action and it belongs equally to father, son, and Holy spirit because 
why the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit act by virtue of their divine omnipotence, right? And they all have this in common. It's not something that the Father has in one, you know, in a kind of greater intensity than the Son or the Spirit. He doesn't have a greater share of power. They all have one power. So they all have, have one act of creation. Nevertheless, the Father has the divine essence, as it were, from no one. The Son has it from the Father. The Spirit has it from the Father and the Son. And so it's also true that the persons stand in relation to one another. And so in some sense, we have to get clear on creation is from the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. And here's where some historical debates kind of come in, and I won't bore people with the uh, the nitty-gritty details, but um, the way that we articulate it in the book, and the way that I find this most helpful, uh, I'm not trying to repeat what this or that theologian said. I'm not just giving you Thomas Aquinas's view, or you know Karl Barth's view, or you know Gregory of Nice's view. I'm trying to offer. I think Bobby and I are both doing this throughout all of our chapters. We're trying to offer a a synthesis, right, of the best stuff that we've seen. That's trying to tell people how it is. So we're not just, you know, this isn't just a a book on like how the fathers read the Bible or something. And this chapter isn't just on how the fathers thought about this. It's how we should think about it. So in some ways, we go beyond some of the things that you know some of the fathers would say. Um, <clears throat> But we think it fits, right? We think it, it stands in consonance with everything that's being said. What would, so be, what, what, would be say, an, what would be an example that you would that you would say is beyond what the father said? Um, you think of something well, offhand? I I don't know um, how much um, space. Well, it, well, when you think about the order of working between the persons, mm. uh, the father acting through the son and by the spirit, um, that doesn't receive a whole lot of conceptual precision in the early church i don't i don't think and uh and in, in, in some people you read you kind of wonder um you know you kind of wonder like you could afford to say more about this like when you read ambrose's book on the holy spirit you're like you could afford to say some more about the yeah. you know <laughs> and basil the, basil doesn't like it because somebody's abusing it so that doesn't help you know <laughs> yeah i mean but even basil has more to say about it than ambrose that's true you know? yeah um ambrose is just like identity 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 and you're like yes but like what about the distinction yeah um and so um and if you're just like a dyed in the wool neo-scholastic on this issue right and you are you've read every single commentary on thomas aquinas probably not going to have a you're not going to be too comfortable with that either. Mm. But, you know, you find there's plenty of people saying this. Gil Emery has an excellent essay where he says, this is President Aquinas, this idea that there's an order of working between the persons and that we have to actually give, I think, uh, significant attention to this. I think he's right. I think you find this in the uh, in the uh, Lutheran and Reformed um, scholastic theologians. Um, the way that I articulate this is uh, to say that in relation to us, the Father, Son, and the Spirit act indistinctly. You cannot distinguish the Father's action from the Son's action from the Spirit's action, right? In anything they do towards us. But if you look at how the persons act in relation to one another, that's where you find the distinction going on. And that just is applying that twofold form of discourse, that redoublement, right, to uh, any given action. And uh, I think that's true of, you know, any of the Trinity's works, right? From creation to eschatological consummation. And so we, we, we try to trace that out. We try to vindicate it, obviously, from the pages of Holy Scripture, 
uh, we try to indicate this concept of indivisible or inseparable operations. And there's a lot more that could be said. There's a lot more that I, I plan to say on this uh, doctrine, but um, for the purposes of the book, you know, like we had to kind of keep it pretty brief. And uh, that's essentially what we end up coming down saying. Yeah. Well, and you do, you have a lot of just clear biblical examples. You know, you've got John 1 and, and 1 Corinthians, you, you've drawn out these different places. And it is it is true. I mean, it's, it's what we keep going back to this biblical idiom. How does the Bible speak about the Father, Son, and Spirit? Well, I, like I think about John is such an obvious one, right? It's the Father has sent the Son, the Father and Son will send the Spirit, the Spirit's going to come and do X, Y, Z. Well, what's the Spirit going to do? Remind you of all the words that I said, apply the salvation to you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you have that distinction there of Father, Son, and Spirit having this sort mm-hmm. of, um, we don't like to use the word role. I don't like to use the word roles. I don't think you do either. But you have these missions, these actions that they are doing. You can say that's what the Spirit does. But he doesn't do it apart from the Father and Son, right? And uh, and he's still God and he's still Lord and so is the Father and Son. So as you think about that appropriations you know, aspect of it, oftentimes I think appropriations is articulated as uh, you have this fourth thing. You have like the divine nature. And then they can just go grab a piece of it when they want it. It's appropriated to them or it's given to them. And so where the father gives the son the, the power to do something, it always seems like it's transactional. I think what you do a really good job of is drawing out that no, appropriation is not some transactional thing. It's it, it's because they are God that they can do God's stuff for as in a crude way of putting it. So maybe just flush out a little bit that idea of appropriation uh, in relationship to inseparable operations. Yeah, we wanted to be kind of minimalist on our the things we say about appropriation. We kind of keep it in this negative regulative function of like, you know, when you see appropriations, just don't go in this direction with them, right? Right. <laughs> That's kind of a um, and to some, to some extent, it's just because you know you can only say so much about this, and we had already kind of like gotten long winded. Um, the other part of it is that you know appropriation itself is really this kind of it's really a doctrine that that kind of takes on a life of its own in the Middle Ages. Yeah, it kind of comes to life in the Middle Ages, and usually it, it's it's not really tethered. Most of the discussions aren't super tethered to doing biblical exegesis. They're more concerned with kind of second level, uh, kind of contemplative exercises, right? Um, how do you power goodness, right? And you know, uh, and uh, and truth, for instance, or whatever, you know, apply to the divine persons and in what sense. And, you know, you, uh, you see this in, in whoever you read. And we didn't want to get too kind of, you know, galaxy brained, right? In our discussion of it, we wanted to really tether ourselves to scripture. Yeah. Um, but I do think it reflects something that's going on in the Bible, right? Uh, why is the Father, for instance, called God? You know, like, well, I think that's an appropriation, right? I think that a name that applies to all three persons. Okay, because the spirit is God, son is God, right? Uh, Father is God is applied to just the just the father. Well, if you look at the particular places where that happens, there's a probably a reason. You know, they're trying to the author is trying to draw your attention to some kind of analogy, some kind of fit, right, within that particular biblical discourse between that divine name and that divine person's hypostatic property, his personal property, his personal distinctiveness from the Father, from, from the Son and the Spirit. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that happens uh, in all sorts of ways. We offer a reading of 1 Corinthians one twenty four, a kind of famous passage in, in, in these debates um, about Christ being the power and wisdom of God. We're tracking with some apocalyptic, you know, kind of exegetes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I kind of, I do like 
a lot of some of those guys and gals. But um, and like, t- like, t- you, like Tim LaHaye, um, like those, <laughs> no, those kind like, of like, oh. <laughs> like um, you know, f- f- people would be really familiar with someone like J. Lewis Martin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm not following hardly any ap- apocalyptic exegete, probably where they everywhere they go, but in being attentive to the apocalyptic dimensions of, for, for instance, a lot of Paul's rhetoric in first Corinthians, you know, that's, uh, there's one particular theologian. We appeal to her quite a bit in one chapter, I think chapter two, uh, I'm forgetting her name. She does a lot on this. Um, um, there, when we're reading first Corinthians one twenty four, we're looking at those apocalyptic elements, for instance, of Paul's rhetoric. And we're saying, you know, there's a lot of confounding happening for the sake of really drawing you closer to think about the sun, mm-hmm. but really not just the sun and his naked divinity, but the sun in the whole of his saving economy, mm-hmm. which in order to actually grasp the truth of, you have to see against the background of his antecedent divinity, right? Uh, it can't just be this eschatological disruption. It's an eschatological disruption that carries an antecedent transcendent fullness within it, right? Mm-hmm. Because of who the sun is eternally begotten from the father and so forth. Um, so we, we, we do some things where we're pointing out, here's where appropriation is probably functioning like we think it's functioning in the Bible. Now, you know, where people want to take appropriation, right, in thinking through the doctrine of the Trinity dogmatically, right, uh, and speculatively and so forth, we don't really get into that, right? We wash our hands and uh, we kind of punt. Yeah. The, the best discussion of that I've honestly seen is by Gerhard Nicolas, uh, the French Dominican uh, theologian. Uh, his work has just been translated. I've got it up there somewhere, but Catholic Dogmatic Theology, Volume One, by CUA, um, Catholic University of America Press. Um, if people want to get into it further, I don't think anyone's done a better, clearer, more economically um, responsible treatment of it than, than Nicolas has. Yeah. So, well, I told you, I yeah. think you, I, I think you don't give yourself enough credit for how helpful just that little section is, but, um, cause it is, it gets, it gets, it's almost like the simplicity of what you do and the backdrop of a really good inseparable operations makes it actually meaningful. Uh, cause like you said, it can be taken off into a hundred different ways, which is, I feel like what, what I see a lot, you know, and, and even good literature is there's always a weird, like, um, yeah, there's a, a weird focus on appropriations that never seems to match the the thrust of what they're actually doing you know it's like hey appropriations let's yeah. let's talk about this and then you're like oh there's no payoff here actually whatsoever yeah. uh, or it's a weird payoff but i think it's what you do you just say like there are things that are proper to the persons the father son spirit really are father son and spirit it's not a mirage it's not some other thing and they also do these things but that's not in uh some sort of contradistinction or some sort of uh it's not against inseparable operations they're not sort of lone actors out here and i just feel like appropriation right. some sometimes devolves into that it's kind of the lone actors doing stuff but they're kind of together yeah. because they're all father son spirit so they sit around the round table uh, uh you know king arthur's uh, knights of the round table and discuss their plans or whatever so i think you just do a really good job of saying here's what it is and then you just move on so i think it's deceptively Thanks. difficult how simple and uh you did but you just call it punting because you're humble but i think you actually did a great job of it so well, it did. It, it it does intimidate me. The doctrine does. You know, I got I got a lot of helpful pushback from um, Ryan Hurd. If you've ever uh, <clears throat> met Ryan Hurd or, or 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 talked to him or whatever, who you know is very much like a, I think a more of a neo-scholastic leading on some of these things. And he 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 just destroyed the first draft of that chapter. <laughs> very very much disagreed with me and forced me to really kind of refine things. Um, 
even though I, I think I come down a little bit differently than he does on some of these issues, he was really helpful in kind of pushing me to, you know, be clear, you know, um, about what you mean. And um, probably he would say, even if you're wrong, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> right. but Just say something. I, I, I think I'm right. Uh, but, 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 you know, who knows? Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, again, we're not trying to say everything that could be said on inseparable operations or appropriation. What we're trying to do is we're trying to show, and this is true for any of the things that we, that we talk about, even when Bobby's talking about part of the exegesis and stuff in later chapters. Mm-hmm. We're trying to provide the, the metaphor we use at one point is biblical on-ramps, right, to the, you know, theological and philosophical highways and byways, right? But we're just trying to provide exegetical on-ramps to show you how, you know, when theologians are talking about this issue, it's not disconnected from, you know, scripture. It's, uh, it shouldn't be at least. I mean, I think you and I both know there's plenty of people out there who are talking about in several operations or appropriation or whatever, mm-hmm. who don't really understand how this is connected to scripture, right? They might have some, some, some understanding, but what we're trying to do is really show how it's transparently, it originates in scripture. Uh, some of the stuff we do is, is trying to show that in fresh ways, but in conversation with modern biblical scholarship, because let me just say this that's really what's interesting to me is you've got these doctrines and civil operations part of the exegesis you know the god befittingness stuff or whatever um to see how those things really are in scripture to me you know one of the benefits of really you know it might sound to listeners as if we've just been kind of like um dogging on biblical scholarship but you know as we make out we make it clear at the outset of our book, we're really trying to take advantage of the best that biblical scholar, modern biblical scholarship has to offer. We are inheritors of modern, modern biblical scholarship. I, I love it, right? I love the good stuff, okay? The bad stuff makes me pull my hair out, but the, the good stuff is good. And, uh, you know, there's an increased literary sensitivity. There's an increased understanding of some of the backgrounds, right? Um, that kind of stuff can, can be helpful when it's, when it's employed judiciously. But um, when you really, you know, attend to some of that stuff well then you're able to kind of ask yourself what i think are really really fascinating questions like for instance well what does it tell us about the inseparable operations doctrine um what does it uh what is it here what does the specific way that it's embedded within john's gospel for instance in all of its literary and theological distinctiveness I don't think that it's opposed to what is being said in the other Gospels or, you know, anything else, but it does have its own texture and its own flavor. If you really pay careful attention to that, and I think that's what's really, I think biblical scholarship these days is much better um, at, at really paying attention to some of those nuances. Um, then what does that tell us about the doctrine itself? How can that inform uh, the doctrine itself? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and so we've, we try to do some of that. But um, that's also something I want to continue working on. Yeah, well, it does seem, you know, mm-hmm. you know, working in sort of similar things of what you guys are doing. I mean, first of all, I wish you had written this when I started my dissertation instead of uh, after I'd already submitted the manuscript to IVP. That would have been really helpful. Um, so maybe next time <laughs> well, consider me when you, uh, when you write your book. I will. Um, I'm such a jerk. Yeah, but there is the man. There's, it's, I, I'm really encouraged personally as somebody who's invested in this a lot, you know, of even you talking about engaging modern biblical scholarship, because there is, there can be a tendency if we're not careful to say everybody is stupid after 
whatever date we decide that they're stupid, you know, whatever it is, the, yeah, the yeah, endless classic yeah. period or, or the, or whatever the, the post-reformation period, whatever we want to stop. Um, and just say, well, everybody was dumb after that. We can't learn anything from them. And I think, uh, you know, we've got a lot of good examples. You brought up Yego and Roe. I think about David Steinmetz. I think about even the stuff that Bachman and those guys are doing. I critique some of what they do in, in mind, but what they're doing is they're setting a table for us to eat on, you know? And so now we're sort of taking like, it, it's, it's kind of, in some sense, I feel like it's on us to say, okay, if we really care about this, let's keep working on what it looks like so that we can help the church understand it better. It's not a grandiose view that we're going to change the world, but it's just, you know, you and I have the same concern for, let's read the Bible in light of how God has presented himself. And so I'm, I'm encouraged by the work you guys right. are doing. And a lot, of, a lot of my thoughts have been, you know, shaped by talking to you over the last couple of years. So I'm indebted to you a lot on that. But Well, likewise, man, this is something that we've all been talking about, especially in discussions around what was it, you know, Center for Baptist Renewal as well. Like, mm. it's all about the Bible, right? Well, people are, cra- um, people are crazy enough to give us contracts for books. So that's the, that's the part we didn't expect. So. <laughs> Their mistake. <laughs> uh, all right, Tyler, I appreciate you doing this, man. It's it a good conversation. Uh, and uh, for listeners, we'll have a part two coming up right after this with Bobby Jamison, where we'll, we'll cover some of this ground again, but really get into the biblical study side of it, which is, again, a whole other conversation, but a very important related conversation. So, Tyler, thanks for being a part one. Thanks, man.